Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome to the podcast three friends who have recently released a, uh, a new book called First Freedom, the, Re- the Beginning and End of Religious Liberty. Uh, these three men are friends one to another and friends to me. First, Dr. Jason Dusing serves as provost and associate professor of historical theology here at Midwestern Seminary. Dr. Thomas White serves as president of Cedarville University. And Dr. Malcolm Yarnell serves as professor of systematic theology and director of the Center for Theological Research at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. Friends, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, uh, as I joked before we went live on this recording, I feel like I'm sitting in on a, uh, a, a, an academic faculty subcommittee meeting from yesteryear at Southwestern Seminary when you three men were colleagues at Southwestern Seminary. And you first issued this book. It's out recently again in a second edition format. But before we get to the book itself, uh, I would love to hear you guys just flesh out a moment on the on the front porch of the conversation, so to speak, about what brought this book into being, the need, the context of the book, and then why its reissuance now in the fall of 2016. Well, I we um, when we all, as you alluded to, were working together at Southwestern Seminary, we started an annual Baptist Distinctives Conference, and we were thinking through what topic on which to focus that first year, and I think it was you, Thomas, who had the idea to focus on religious liberty that that first year that was all the way back in 2005, and thankfully, through our friends at B&H Academic, they allowed us to publish those essays in the form of the first book, First Freedom, The Baptist Perspective on Religious Liberty, in 2007. So that was the original occasion, and uh, the publisher, as those issues and topics have only continued to become more and more significant, had interest in re-releasing it, and especially in this election year, uh, and they kindly worked to help publish it before the election uh, just this month. Yeah, well, lest I take credit for something that somebody else has, I actually sat down with, with Paige Patterson in his office and was talking about the conferences and Baptist distinctives and asked him the question, what would you consider to be the most important Baptist distinctive? And in my mind, I had having just uh, been studying James Madison Pendleton, was thinking along the lines of baptism, local church, and he immediately said religious freedom. And so I asked for an explanation on that, and in short order was convinced, and then uh, proceeded to start working with others to generate the idea and planning for the conference. Uh, so it, it actually uh, was Dr. Patterson who originated the idea and planted it in our minds, and so then we proceeded forward with a successful event. Well, as I suspected, the idea, like so many good ideas, uh, go back to Dr. Paige Patterson, so kudos to him. You know, the book itself, I want to just hop in here, and again, one of my aims for this conversation is to draw lines between the book and the topic of religious liberty to the local church, and especially to preaching and to the preaching ministry of the local church. Now, the title of the book is First Freedom, and and most books for me that I read, I I just kind of get right into the meat of the book and kind of glance over the uh, early pages of the introduction and the dedication that acknowledgments and that sort of thing. But I stopped in my tracks as I was flipping through the early pages of the book and just paused over the dedication page itself. And I want to read it. It's very brief here. Not to read it and ask you men just to comment on, on the point of dedication. It says this, this volume is dedicated to the saints of God who gave their lives to gain the religious liberty that we enjoy and defend today. And then this great quote from Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
whose idea was it to dedicate this book to these saints and why? Uh, Malcolm, I think that was your idea. I'd love to hear you explain, expand a little bit more on that. Well, as it, in so much that happened with the book, I think it was really all of us coming uh, together. Um, I, I do have to say this, that quote from Tertullian also fits in uh, with Dr. Dusing's essays that, uh, that begin and end the book, talking about the beginning and the end of religious liberty. And the fact is that religious liberty from a Christian perspective uh, comes in the context of the movement of the kingdom of God and of what God is doing through his churches. And so our, our ultimate goal is not religious liberty in itself, but religious liberty for the end of the preaching of the word of God. And so, uh, and we know of course, that uh, when, the, when the state or other actors uh, try to limit the preaching of the Word of God, then our religious liberty is clearly at stake. Fortunately, Tertullian uh, coined that famous, uh, that f- famous statement, and it is true. Uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, but the word martyr must be understood not really in its present connotation, of one who dies for a cause, but one who witnesses. And so the context of martyrdom is always the context of witness in the uh, Christian understanding. Now, when we think about religious liberty, and you begin to think about the different topics or subtopics underneath it, you know, as I peruse the table of contents of the book, reminded of just the helpful contributions that are made throughout it. Uh, you have chapters by, for instance, Dr. Paige Patterson, uh, by, by other scholars we know and appreciate, Barrett Duke, Evan Lino, Russell Moore, Al Moeller, Andrew Walker, and, and each chapter uh, in and of itself really merits a conversation, but I don't have these other men uh, on the call today or in the studio today. Uh, I have you three, and so I want to focus the conversation really around your contributions to the book and then top that really spawn from that. Before we do, help me, help us to define religious liberty. What do we mean when we say that? If I could, I'd like to, this is Malcolm Yarnell, I'd like to uh, jump in on that and just uh, provide a quick definition that uh, Dr. Ducey and Dr. White can uh, correct or expand upon. I view religious liberty as a natural outworking of a Christian uh, theological conviction. The fact is is that uh, all human beings will one day stand before God and give an account uh, for what they have done, what they have said, what they have believed. And because every human being must give that account, um, we know that the ultimate court is not here but there. And so the human conscience is very important in the Judeo-Christian understanding. Uh, just a quick uh, passage from Scripture uh, that, your, uh, that your hearers will probably know by heart, but Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts will either accuse them or excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. And so this Christian conviction that all human beings must stand before God and uh, be either justified or condemned is something that is present to every human being in the conscience, unless it's been seared or otherwise uh, mistaught. And so out of this uh, conviction that every human being 
is responsible for before God. Uh, Christians in uh, uh, early modern Europe begin to discover the fact that the state could not uh, make a decision uh, for the individual and for the churches. And out of this idea that every person is responsible, uh, we came to the conclusion that the state cannot coerce or force the human conscience. And so religious liberty is actually an outworking of the idea of the freedom of conscience. And as uh, uh, Dr. White shows in his chapter uh, clearly, it is the Anabaptists and the Baptists who are Christians that um, arrive at these conclusions well before the Enlightenment uh, uh, arrived at similar conclusions. Yeah, I want to get there in a moment, but let's hold off on the Baptists just for a minute because we have paid a particular price and and bear a particular burden and responsibility in this regard in our present generation. Um, But continue to unpack this definition. Uh, Dr. Dusinger, White, would you guys like to add or elaborate upon uh, Dr. Yarnell's commentary? Well, I, I, Malcolm has, I think, stated it quite well, but, it, you know, the bottom line, if you're really boiling it down, it arises out of this concern of separation of church and state and the recognition that the state has has never been given the right to legislate anything with regard to man's heart or soul. And the New Testament, in the New Testament context, you never see anyone coercing or forcing faith either. There's persuasion language, you're pleading with people, but there's never an instance in which the the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is in, in a position of coercing or forcing or much even more punishing or executing for differing faith. So it's the preservation of that universal freedom for all to, to practice the dictates of their conscience and soul as they see fit. Now, in the year 2016, there there often is a what I refer to as a, a cheap substitute that is offered for religious freedom or freedom of religion. Uh, that's freedom of worship. And there's a big difference between the two, uh, is there not, Dr. White? That, that is true. Uh, freedom of worship would, would contend that we can worship as long as we stay inside the walls of our church, but don't take our faith outside of those walls. And that certainly is not uh, freedom of religion. Freedom of religion would contend that we should take our faith beyond the walls of the church, and we should uh, use the open marketplace of ideas to present the truth of the gospel and a biblical worldview, and then allow each individual person to make their decision of whether they wish to re- accept or reject Christ. And uh, it also recognizes that the civil government has no authority over the soul, and so in that regard, each person will stand judgment for his or her decision uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. When you think about we as Baptists, and all four of us in this conversation are Baptists, Southern Baptists, happily wholeheartedly Baptist, and uh, Dr. Yarnell, as you intimated a moment ago, we Baptists have paid a particular price throughout the centuries, and uh, we bear a particular burden in the 21st century to uphold uh, the standard, to be standard bearers for religious liberty. Uh, Perhaps Dr. Yarnell or any of you three, hop in, and just for our listeners who are listening to this podcast, most of them are pastors or church members or in ministerial positions, and they may be somewhat aware of our own Baptist history, but flesh this out for a couple of minutes. Why are we as Baptists of all people should be on the forefront of agitating for religious liberty? 
I would contend well, I, that this starts back with the Anabaptists, and uh, before even some would contend that the Baptists existed. But you know, the Anabaptists clearly put forward, uh, based off of Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 through 43, on the parable of the weeds, uh, how that the world would have good seed and bad seed, and that we were not to try to destroy the bad seed until the end when everything would be harvested and thrown into the furnace. So based off of that understanding of two kingdoms where God's still in control of both kingdoms, but where there is a, a worldly separation, uh, the civil government uh, established in Romans would take care of uh, what was happening uh, negatively in society, but that the church should take care of spiritual uh, matters and handle spiritual disciplines, and that we couldn't coerce voluntary faith. So uh, killing a heretic actually ended their opportunity for evangelism and salvation, uh, and that meant that we should actually extend religious liberty to all groups, those who are heretics, those with whom we disagree, and that allowed the possibility for evangelism. So based off of what the Anabaptists argued and articulated, believing in a pure church and not a corpus uh, Christianum, a mixed church of unbelievers and believers, uh, launched through the Waterland Confession and influence on John Smith and others, uh, the Baptist beliefs, which then came across the pond into America. Uh, so I think we stand on the shoulders of the Anabaptists who in fact gave their lives with an, an average lifespan of two, two and a half years, uh, that we truly there see the blood of the martyrs as the seed of the church as well. And so we stand on their shoulders as well as Baptist shoulders uh, as free churchmen believing in a pure church of believers only. Uh, and that's when we contend for religious freedom. I think, I think uh, I, of course, agree completely with that. And, and the early chapters in the book really unpack this and focusing, the first three chapters focusing on all this from a historical perspective. One thing that's often misunderstood on this is that Baptists seem to be in this game for self-preservation purposes. They are free churches separate from the state, often operating illegally, and so much of their protest is because of... Um, you know, they just don't want to be persecuted anymore. They don't want to be thrown in jail. And there is an element of them sort of defending this principle for the sake of their own self-preservation. But some of what we even try to show throughout the book is it's actually more other-centered. Um, they know what's going to happen to them when they die. They have the assurance based on their faith in Christ Jesus that when they die, they will be um, reunited with their Lord and Savior. But they're advocating the preservation of this right of religious freedom precisely for those who are unsure about their eternal destiny. There's a sense of preservation for others and this idea of the protection of the free exercise of religion or religious liberty, even the founding of this country, has a somewhat of an evangelistic focus. And I think that's part of why it's worth even recovering and talking about today. It's not just so much that we can continue to live the lives we live now and the freedoms we have. We hope those continue to exist. But if they're taken away, we're we're confident and assured of what still will happen to us, but it's for the sake of all those whose time is literally running out and they aren't secure of their eternal destiny that we should pursue the right of this perspective. And Dr. Yarnell, you frame this up for us in chapter three uh, when, when you talk about early American political theology. So Dr. White kind of framed this back in the Anabaptists, fleshed this out for us in the colonial and then a post-revolutionary era. Well, if, if I could, what I discovered in my own research is that I found two traditions among early American Baptists with regard to religious liberty and the separation of church and state. On the one hand, you have the Virginia tradition, which is really more well-known political theology, and that really argues for a strict separation of church and state. 
but a, a, a milder form of separation of church and state, uh, and, and much less strict, was the South Carolina uh, tradition. Uh, one tradition uh, is adamant that the, 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 the state and the church have two separate responsibilities. The state has the role of uh, suppressing evil and rewarding good. Uh, the church has the role of proclaiming uh, the word of God. One bears the physical sword. The other one bears the sword of the spirit. And uh, really, you just need to keep the two as, uh, as distinct as possible. Uh, but in the South Carolina tradition, there were some arguments uh, for more influence by the church upon the state. Um, they were just as adamant that the state cannot tell the church uh, what to do. But in the South Carolina tradition, uh, there's more willingness uh, to get the church and ministers uh, involved uh, in the work of the state. And uh, people like uh, Richard Furman uh, were uh, instrumental, really, in the uh, foundation of this country and argued for Baptists uh, to support the revolutionary cause. And, and so I, I found that there were two uh, different or distinct uh, attitudes towards the separation of church and state uh, between uh, the Virginia Baptists and the uh, the uh, South Carolina Baptist. And, well, wasn't and, and help me here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but on the fly, wasn't South Carolina the uh, the last state to actually have a, a a state-sponsored church in the form of the Episcopalian Church until what the the mid 1830s? Is that right? Well, um, the the South Carolina tradition continued, to, and it was a weak state-sponsored uh, church, but it did go for a uh, very long time. And the Baptists, uh, surprisingly, uh, were willing to operate uh, within that tradition. Uh, but we have to remember that at, at, that, at the time that our nation was uh, founded, the, uh, South Carolina was really uh, an economic hotspot. Uh, Charleston uh, was the richest city for a long time in the United States, and Baptists uh, did well economically in that period. I mean, we had uh, uh, ladies and lords uh, who were Baptists, and um, and and they were, um, you know, they were recognized as uh, great leaders. And so, this uh, this uh, upper class type of Baptist in the uh, Charleston tradition is much more comfortable with the state than were the, uh, the lower and middling classes uh, within the Virginia tradition. You know, I really want to try to accomplish two things in this podcast. The one is to inform our listeners to the broad sweep of religious liberty, and as you meant so helpfully, flesh that out in the context of this book. And I think we're, we're, we're doing that. We've done that at least uh, to some degree, and we're pointing our listeners back to get this book, uh, to, to read this more thoroughly and, and learn it more intimately. But also, I want the, the listeners of this podcast to keep hitting them with the question, why does this matter? Why should they care? If I'm pastoring the typical church, whether it's in the Bible Belt or in the Pacific Northwest or in the New England or across this great country or beyond, why should I care about religious liberty? I think we have to be careful when we talk about this so as not to overstate the threat. However, I must confess that the possibility of overstating the threat has, is, being, is greatly diminished with each week that passes because I do believe the threat is growing. 
In particular, I want us to touch on two different realities. One is the local church ministry, the preaching of the word, and the other is the threads relates to Christian entities or institutions, Christian ministries, Christian universities. For the first, I want to remind us of what took place two years ago in Houston with uh, the subpoena issued through uh, the office of the Houston Mayor Nice Parker for these evangelical sermons uh, that, that dare, these evangelical preachers in pulpits that dare speak to issues of, of sexuality and gender. Now, we all know that played out politically and it wound up uh, caving under uh, the weight uh, of its own weight. But at the same time, that was issued. Uh, that was playing out before us. Uh, is that an ongoing threat? Do you men see that as a current threat before us to where the evangelical pulpit, especially as we speak out prophetically to issues of marriage, of sexuality and gender, uh, is there a real threat there in the near-term future? Well, this is Malcolm Yarnell again. And, and I have to say, I think you're right to, to warn us, let's not become uh, shrill or uh, become overexcited about things that have not happened and that may happen. But I, I think the fact is, is that our society is becoming uh, less conducive to arguments for free speech. And recently, uh, a major federal commission asserted that uh, lay uh, uh, gay, uh, bisexual, and transgender dogma uh, was actually being undermined uh, by religious liberty, and that religious liberty was just an excuse uh, to be uh, against those human beings who identify themselves primarily by their sexuality. And so, yes, and, and there are a number of other cases, but I, I do think that uh, the threat is there it is on the edges for the most part, uh, but sometimes it crops up in the government, it, and it's cropped up in at all levels of government, uh, federal, state, and local. It's also cropped up uh, in the executive as well as in the uh, legislative and judicial branches. And so it's something we have to be eternally vigilant uh, to preserve our religious liberty. Um, and and so that's where we are, and our society we is becoming much more secular, and sometimes uh, very hostile uh, to to what uh, Christians believe. I think uh, cropping up is the right word. I, the prevalency with cropping up it's happening more and more. I mean, just at our neighboring state in Iowa, even recently the Iowa Civil Rights Commission passed gender identity guidelines to regulate, quote, a church service open to the public, uh, they would regulate those to prevent churches from expressing their views in there. Now, that's currently um, in litigation, and our friends at the Alliance Defending Freedom are working toward that, but cropping up from here and there and lots of places, I think, you know, none of this overly and overarchingly, even in the book, what we're trying to say, none of it is ultimately worth wringing our hands over because we know what happens ultimately. But there is an awareness, awareness problem because they're happening state to state and there's not a full awareness of what's going on. I think it is happeningly, happening increasingly. Um, I think a really helpful statement on religious liberty was crafted by the Evangelicals and Catholics Together uh, group in 2012. And at the beginning of that statement, they recognize that there is, in fact, a movement to drive religious belief and especially orthodox Christian religious and moral convictions out of public life. So these things I don't think are happening by accident. And I, again, you know me, I'm not an alarmist or a conspiratorialist, but I think there is an active move to there are people in our country who think this country would be better without overt religious belief practice in public life. And they're organizing and doing things to try to drive that out. 
you know, I was listening to a, a leading cultural commentator in recent days talk about this issue, and he is not an evangelical and so was not speaking as an evangelical, but he was cautioning folks like ourselves who referenced the First Amendment and uh, as we should reference the First Amendment. But he, he said this, he said, I, I would caution Christians, evangelical Christians, from finding assurance in the First Amendment. He said, you ought to be able to find assurance in the First Amendment, but if you think the, uh, the average secular modern man cares that much what was written in the you know, 1770s, 1780s, the end of, uh, of the 18th century, you fundamentally misunderstand modern man. You're gonna have to make the case why it benefits modern man to tolerate religious liberty. And it was, like, it was a, a shocking assessment he gave, but it, 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 it had the ring of accuracy to it. Because if you're may, having to make your argument based upon uh, the founding era in America, though we should and rightfully can, um, sometimes that's a losing strategy with people that could care less what the founders thought about this issue. I, I want to, and, and time is passing here very quickly, but I do want to touch on before we're done here, uh, the status of Christian institutions, of Christian colleges and universities. And uh, I lead a seminary which is more obviously and closely held by the church and governed by the church. Uh, Dr. White, you lead Cedarville University, uh, which also is a Christian university, a Christian entity, but your governance is, is configured differently here, and so perhaps a school like yours would be would feel the threat more acutely and more imminently than, than we say here at Assembly would feel, but, but you wrote so eloquently in your chapter in this book on Christian universities. Perhaps you could take just a minute or two and handicap for the listeners, for the pastors, uh, the threats you feel, uh, the, the danger you perceive that Christian universities are truly under. Yeah, I, you know, I would say for the local church and for the pastor, uh, the first thing I would want them to know is that secular universities are promoting a secular humanistic agenda, and, and they are out to push religion into the corners and into the closets and to lock the doors. And and so that there's an attack coming. We're, we're at worldview war here, and we need to be aware of that. We need to understand it, uh, not in a way of wringing our hands, but just in a way of understanding what the Scripture tells us as we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. For a Christian university like ourselves, there are uh, many things that come against us. Uh, the fears are that we, like local churches, could might lose tax-exempt status, uh, that we might lose our federal funding, which a church wouldn't have to worry about, or that we might lose accreditation. Uh, those are most likely going to come in the area of Title IX, uh, f- working with the OCR, or in Title VII, uh, working in employment uh, relations. It probably would hit us in the fact that they would say we are creating a hostile environment for those of the LGBT community, uh, or that we are not operating under the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And the information coming forward is to try to put the LGBT issue or the transgender issue under the 1964 Civil Rights Act, even though it wasn't part of it when originally voted on. Uh, And so it's inserting it into previous legislation. They don't have to pass new legislation, which would be more controversial. And then they can use that through lower government areas uh, as a club in which to force institutions uh, to compromise or to go along with the agenda. They're even publishing the names of all those who file for a Title IX exemption in order to shame them into uh, caving or compromising. For an institution like mine or an institution like yours, uh, we see standing firm on the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ as a badge of honor. And so we do so with compassionate conviction. We, we don't do so in a way that, that harms others because we're commanded to love others as we love ourselves, but we do so with a conviction that we're going to stand firm. Uh, and we expect the local churches and pastors who are listening to this would, would have that 
same understanding. So we just need to be able to articulate clearly and compassionately a biblical worldview uh, and to stand for our beliefs in the coming days, whether that means we spend time in jail or whether that means uh, we uh, suffer some cost or whether that means we prosper, uh, depending on the waves of the culture. And I know you three men well. Um, I know Dr. Ducing especially well. I know myself pretty well. None of us are alarmist. None of us are prone to drama. We're not trying to whip up controversy. But we would be failing in our Christian ministerial responsibility not to point out the very real challenges the church now faces and the threats, real or potential, that are on the horizon for the Lord, for the Church of Lord Jesus Christ. Time has flown by, and gentlemen, I wish I had another 30 minutes to unpack this book with you. Uh, Dr. Ducing, I want to give you just the last word here. You open the book and end the book, so you hold the book in chapters. In the introduction, uh, you flesh out the beginning of religious liberty, and in the conclusion, you flesh out the end of religious liberty. Now, I'm going to steal your, your punch here for a moment. Uh, by end, you have an intentional play on words there, meaning the, the, the goal, the result, the hope of religious liberty. For the pastor listening to this podcast, what is the end of religious liberty? Well, the, well, there's two things. There's a realization that religious liberty will come to an end, and whether it comes to the end in our lifetime or as citizens in this country or whether we're you know, all living somewhere else and some, under some other government at some point in time, it will come to an end. Ultimately, we know that it comes to an end when we think about Philippians 2, when it says that at some point, um, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. At that point, religious liberty, the time for someone to express their faith in Christ or any other religion is now coming to an end. That's a universal acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. It's not universalism, um, but it is a universal bowing of the head and acknowledgement. There is no freedom of religion. So God ultimately is the one holding religious liberty together, and he's doing it uh, as a, with great patience at a time for people to come to repentance and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So the ultimate end goal of religious liberty, the reason I believe God has allowed for religious freedom on this planet is to give those whom he's, he's created time to learn of the Savior and, and express their faith, put their faith in him uh, and trust in him. And ultimately that we know, just like the picture of Philippians 2 gives us, that will bring great glory, glory to God himself uh, as we all praise and exalt him for the saving work he's done through his son. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for the book, First Freedom, The Beginning and End of Religious Liberty, out by B&H Academic. Thank you, Drs. Ducing, White, and Yarnell for the conversation. And friends listening to Preaching and Preachers, I encourage you to get this book, to access it, to read it, and to inform your congregations and those within your sphere of influence accordingly. Thank you, friends, for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Allen. Thank you for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, please visit my website, jasonkallen.com.